You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, while we were far from you, you drew near to us. You have promised to be with the brokenhearted. You have blessed those who are poor in spirit. Be with us now, we pray, as we study your word. Amen. I have a question for you this morning, which as we get started, what, when were you at your most famous? When, when did you peak in terms of notoriety? Now, now, for some of you, this is sort of a difficult question. You think, well, I mean, every day, right? But for some of us, we sort of peaked early. Uh, so for me, I was at the tender age of six when I reached my greatest level of celebrity. Um, I, here's what was going on. I grew up in a small town, Bryant, Arkansas. It's in Saline County. It's a sort of semi-rural town right on the edge of Little Rock. And there was a big political race going on, and it was heated. And so I found myself at the age of six, standing on the courthouse steps with balloons in my hand, campaigning for the family values candidate. All right. And I had memorized all the talking points. I knew them down by heart, right? And I could give a compelling speech for why we should vote for this guy. Our guy has standards. He's a servant of the people. He cares about the family. And then there was like some other stuff, but that didn't really matter. And a journalist came up and she asked me about it. Here's this little six-year-old with balloons. And so I gave her a balloon. I can't, I can't but uh, think that she was touched by the fervor of my, um, of my platform here. And uh, so she took my picture. Fast forward a little bit, our guy wins the campaign, right? Grandma uh, cuts the picture out of the paper, and I have achieved a level of notoriety unequaled in those days before social media. <laughs> Fast forward a few years more. I'm, I'm not six anymore, now I'm nine. And I remember talking to my dad and saying, hey dad, what about our guy? And he said, oh, we don't vote for our guy anymore. We vote for the other guy. And I said, Wait, what, what happened to our guy? Well, it turns out that family values guy was sort of low on the family values. Um, <laughs> He had, he had run off with the secretary, left the wife and the kids. We didn't vote for our guy anymore. This happens a lot, right? In, in any sort of decent society, this would be kind of a rare story. We don't think, oh man, how terrible. In, in our society, it feels like that happens every day. That's just a normal Tuesday. You wake up, some political leader, some religious leader has abandoned trust, right? Has shown themselves to be morally bankrupt. It causes a kind of listlessness as a culture. We start scratching our heads and thinking, I don't know, are there good people? Is anybody trustworthy? What, what does it even mean to be a good person anymore? I, I was reading something written by an ethics professor back home, back in Little Rock, and, and she was saying, you know, my students, none of them have any idea what would even count as, as sort of an argument for something to be good versus bad. They're, they're just, when I ask them about it, they've got nothing. It's got to just be, I don't know, whatever we feel like is good or bad. They can't begin to think of the question. Now, what's funny to me is that children don't ask this question, all right? Children are not, they're not sort of ambivalent about the question of good and bad. They're not, uh, they, they've got an idea of what a good person is, and what they're really curious about is bad people. I don't know if, if any of you have raised children, if you've been around little children, they love the idea of a bad guy. All right. Who are bad guys? Where are they? Can we fight them? These are all questions that my kids at least, ask. they all go through a phase asking this. My boys are in the midst of a protracted argument. It's been about six months. Uh, at story time, when the bad guy gets his comeuppance, are you allowed to cheer? <laughs> on the one hand, bad guy. On the other hand, love your neighbors. Or, I mean, your enemies, right? You know, what are you? Anyway, so they've been, I'm going to let them fight it out. They'll figure it out and get back to me. Children don't worry about this question. 
but we do. As we get older, that question inverts, right? Instead of where are the bad guys, we start really wondering where are the good guys? And if there is such a thing as a good guy, what is it? And if it's possible for someone to be good, how could I become good? Am I a good person? We ask ourselves in the middle of the night, right? We start thinking through all the things that we've done. We start thinking, I don't even know how to get started on that path. I'd like to spend some time there this morning with those two questions. What does it mean to be a good person? Could I ever become one? That's really what all of our readings today are about, right? The psalm begins, how can a young man order his ways? By following the law. That actually, that piece of the psalm, the whole of Psalm 119 is all a reflection upon the law. Uh, the reading from Sirach, let me, let me just explain, because uh, this is sort of an unusual reading. Uh, in, in our tradition, the, Sirach is not part of the scriptures. All right, it, But we read it because uh, Sirach is sort of like, if you will, because we're Anglicans, uh, he's sort of like the C.S. Lewis of the early church. Uh, it, it was so popular a reading that people started calling it the church book, Ecclesiasticus is its other name. Um, and so we sort of, we inherit it as, hey, here's a great place to look for moral guidance, uh, for some instruction in godly living, but it's not, it's not scripture. It's not on the same level. We don't say the word of the Lord when we finish reading it uh, to kind of mark that. But the book of Sirach today is all about living a right life. Before you are fire and water. Before you is life and death. How do you choose life? Well, our gospel today is about that question. Christ has both of those questions. What does it mean to be good? How could you be a good person? Both of those squarely in view in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, the portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we're reading today and we're reflecting on. And so what I want to do is I want to spend some time talking about that. Before we get there, though, we need to do just a little bit of background and then we'll catch up with the story, and it'll, it'll begin to make sense. But if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been in the middle of a sermon series on the Sermon of the Mount. Daniel's done a great job giving us the context overall. Matthew, in his gospel, is setting Jesus up as a sort of fulfillment of Moses. Okay, so there are all of these parallels between Jesus and Moses, right? Uh, even going back all the way to the beginning of Jesus' life, there are these parallels between Jesus starting his life in the midst of adversity, Moses starting his life in the midst of adversity. And Matthew is highlighting these portions of the story so that you can pay attention to that parallel. And so what do we know about Moses? Well, God sends Moses to pull the people out of Egypt. God uh, brings the people through Moses across the Red Sea, and he brings them to the mountain. And on the mountain, Moses receives the law and then gives it to the people. Well, listen to what our gospel says. This is a little, I'm picking up a little bit before our reading today. It says, And great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, that's everybody, all the people of Israel, and from beyond the river Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. What's the point of this? Well, you have the people, you have the river, you have the mountain, and Christ is sitting down. Whatever's going to come out of his mouth now is the fulfillment of the law. He's doing exactly what Moses did on Sinai. But, you know, and that part we've got, that part we've, we've talked about that for the last few weeks. There's another thing happening here. There's something that's happened in between Moses and Jesus that's also playing into the context. And that's what I want to highlight for you this morning. You see, there's a problem. The people are in the midst of a sort of moral crisis. When Moses had given them the law, it had been tethered to the kingdom. Here was the thing. I've promised you this kingdom, God says. You remember, he promised the kingdom to Abraham. The people wind up in slavery. He's pulled them out of slavery. And now he said, here's the deal with the kingdom. I'm going to give you the law. If you keep the law, you get the kingdom. 
If you fail to keep the law, you lose the kingdom, right? That's the deal. And the people had the kingdom for a little while, and then they lost it. They lost it to the Assyrians. They lost it to the Babylonians and the Persians. They get it back for just a minute, and then they lose it again. And now they exist in a kind of vassal state under the Roman Empire. And this is not a win, right? Nobody's happy about this situation. And so the question, the million-dollar question that everyone is trying to work out is how do we get the kingdom back? What do we have to do so that God will give us the kingdom back? And, and, you know, the answers are coming in in all of your usual flavors. You've got the politicians that are saying, hey, we just need to bide our time. Just play it cool with Rome for a little while. And when the time is right, in other words, when my power starts slipping, then we'll make our move and we'll get the kingdom back. And you've got the zealots who are saying, no, we need to fight for the kingdom. We have to show God that we're willing to die for the kingdom and then he'll give it back to us. But the most popular answer probably was that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law, and they looked at the prophetic tradition, and they said, you know, actually, this is pretty clear. We lost the kingdom because we stopped following the Lord. We didn't keep the law, and that's, that's why the kingdom was taken away. If we want the kingdom back, we have to start following the law. If we follow the law, then we can get it back. And you know, that, that had a certain, y'all, that had a, a certain kind of Uh, broad appeal, right? That made sense. No one looking at the history of Israel could deny that God had said, if you keep going in this way, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. And so then they began to think, all right, it stands to reason then if we just return to the law, wouldn't God have to give the kingdom back to us, right? Couldn't we all just, if we achieve a kind of collective level of holiness, then won't God reward us with the kingdom? Right? And you can imagine the kind of the civic duty that this would turn into. Now, you know, instead of the posters that say, like, keep calm and carry on, this would be keep calm and keep the Shabbat, right? <laughs> We've got to follow the law. And if everyone follows the law, then, well, there we go. We'll, we'll check the boxes. We'll keep performing. And if we get it all right, then God will send the Messiah and he'll lead us into victory and we'll have the kingdom back. So here comes Jesus. And he's performing miracles and he's teaching and the people are following him. And there's this incredible energy behind what he's doing. And he goes up on the side of the mountain and he sits down and begins to talk. And you can imagine the people, they're, they're you know, uh, patting each other on the back. They said, we did it. We did it. All right, here's the moment. We've achieved the level of holiness. And Jesus opens his mouth. And what does he say? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you can just imagine the groan. Just the what? What do do you mean? I think for some of us, those lines, when we read this part of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a groan inside of us that says, I don't understand. I was working as hard as I could. That is beyond me. You know, the Sometimes we think of the Pharisees as hypocrites, and that's, that's probably fair, but they were also the most moral people that anyone knew. If you wanted to point to someone that was following the law, you pointed to a Pharisee. I can think of people in my own life that I hold in that kind of esteem, where I think this is, this is a person that's following the Lord. If I could just be a little more like them, I'm going to be all right. And can you imagine God saying, unless you can do better than the holiest person you know, you're not going to make it in the kingdom. It's not enough. You're not going to make the cut. What's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is teaching them something here. He's teaching us something here about the nature of goodness, 
What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be in the right with God, to be righteous? I think Christ knows that many of us live our lives in this place where we try to earn our goodness, right? We try to earn that right standing with God. And you might be thinking, no, I don't do that. Yes, you do. (laughs) Here's how you know you do it. Because the moment that you hit that anxious place, the moment that you hit that insecure place, when that person that you really trusted just completely betrays that trust, when all of a sudden you find out that things are not going well at work and your job might be on the line, what's the script that starts going in your head? But God, I, I did all these good things. What do, you, what do you mean I'm a terrible person? No, I'm a good person. Look, man, I was there for you, right? We start self-justifying. We start sort of running the script that we didn't even realize we were keeping tabs, but we've kept all the tabs. We have the receipts. I'm a good person. And it's amazing in those moments how small, whatever our sort of indiscretions might have been, right? We, we, it's, we become such great benevolent judges of our own past mistakes in the effort to justify ourselves. Well, Christ comes to spare us the agony of self-justification. Let me stop you right there, he says. Whatever your standard is, you would have to go beyond it. Unless you become a better person than the best people you know, you cannot earn your relationship with me. So then what? All hope is lost? Right? What do we do with that? What, if that's the case, what can I do? How could anyone achieve righteousness? How could anyone become a good person? And that is the question that Christ is trying to get you to ask. What could it possibly mean to be a good person. Christ is challenging you to see the law not as a means, but as a sign. Here's what I mean. Not as boxes you can check off to make sure that you're righteous, but as the very outflowing of righteousness. And so he draws them through a series of examples. And and um, for each example, the temptation is to view the law as a mechanism, to view the the law as a checkbox. If I do each of these, great, now I'm righteous. And for each of these, Christ is going to flip it. He's going to push a little further. And so let's, let's look at these real quickly. He says, uh, do not murder. Check. I can do that, right? Uh, do not commit adultery. Check. Do not. The thing about divorce is what he's saying is you've heard it said that you're supposed to like settle things with your spouse before you move on to another one, right? You're, you're supposed to sort of uh, end everything amicably. Sure, I can end relationships amicably. I can do that. Uh, don't break any vows that you make unto the Lord. Okay, maybe. I can, yeah, I can try for that, right? We can do all of these things, maybe not perfectly, but if we're serious enough, we can, we can accomplish these goals. I can at least not murder anyone. <laughs> Feel solid. But Christ is going to take each of these external signs and he's going to push them inside, into your inner life. The law tells you not to murder, but I say not to be angry. It gets a little harder. The law says not to commit adultery. I say don't even think about it. The law says that you have to tie up loose ends with your spouse, right? You have to end things amicably. And I say don't break your marriage covenant at all. Keep every oath that you make. In fact, be the kind of person that you don't have to make oaths. Just speak the truth to one another. Righteousness, Christ is saying, comes from the heart. It flows out from the heart. What you do out here is a reflection, is an outflowing of the thing that's going on in here. 
It's not enough to not murder your brother. You have to love him. You have to love the people around you. Now, we're, we're in a, a tricky place here, right? Um, for those of you who grew up in the church, this can be especially tricky. Because here's what you're tempted to hear, right? Uh, you may recognize this temptation to replace one kind of legalism with another kind of legalism. Oh, yeah, that was the old law. Here's the new law. And here's how this works. We, we say, okay, well, Christ says, don't call anyone a fool. I can do that, the idiot, Right? <laughs> Sometimes it can be a little silly. We, you know, Christ says not to swear. Okay, well, I can't swear, but, you know, promises, those are okay, right? Sometimes it's not so silly. Sometimes the new legalism looks more like the man that has the demon driven out that's replaced by seven other worse demons. I think this uh, becomes especially the case when we treat other people as a threat to our own righteousness. So the Lord says not to lust, and we begin to build these walls around ourselves to protect ourselves from other people. All of a sudden, lust becomes something that other people do to us. It's their fault. They're tempting me. We're back in the garden, right? What does Adam say when he falls? Well, it's this woman that you put here with me. We do the same thing with marriage, right? The Lord says not to break your marriage vows, and boy, do we latch on to, we hold to that exception, right? That's, for some of us, that's the only thing we see, and that whole teaching is just, well, except for, there's an exception, We've just missed the point. I've talked with people that are in these really painful places, right? Deep emotional and relational pain. And, and they've said before, and I think we can kind of recognize this, right? If, you know, sometimes I just wish the other person would just go have an affair. And then we could end it, right? Then we could be done. How quickly we fall back into that kind of legalism. How quickly we look for a way to self-justify, a way to mark ourselves as safe, from any sort of recrimination, right? Look, I've kept the law. I've done all the things. I've checked the boxes. But of course, that's the whole point. Righteousness isn't something external to you. It's not something you can check off. The only answer that you can come to at the end of the day, the thing Christ is describing that has to happen is a complete transformation of your inner life. A complete change of your heart, right? It's not enough not to murder. You have to love. And that theme of inner transformation is going to come back again and again throughout the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's one of the sort of the things to look for as you're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Think about when he says, don't, you know, when you come to give your tithe, don't announce how much you're giving and make a big parade out of it. When you go to pray, don't stand on the corner and shout out your prayer in big words so that everybody knows how great of a person you are. What matters isn't those external things. What matters is the heart, Go into your room and pray in secret, and your Father who sees what you do in secret will hear you. What matters is the heart. What really matters isn't how well we perform these things outside of ourselves. What matters is the state of our inner life, is the state of our heart. But so there's, you know, there's the definition of goodness, right? What does it mean to be a good person? The good person is the one who loves what God loves. But if that's the definition of goodness, we might, not still be, we might still not be in a great place, okay? Because here's the problem. Even if we know what goodness is, even if we know what goodness is, how could we ever get there? The state of our heart is a mess, right? The testimony of Scripture continuously, the testimony of our own lives, if we look at ourselves honestly, is that the heart is bent and broken. 
Genesis 6, the Lord looked out upon mankind and saw that every inclination of his heart was towards evil. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. St. Paul says in Romans, I do the very thing I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? The moment I start trying to love my brother, I just, I realize how much I don't love my brother. The moment I start to keep my vows, I realize there's a part of me that's just not interested in keeping my vow. I just made it for convenience sake. The moment that I start to try to live righteously is the moment that I realize that something inside of me doesn't want anything to do with that. So if everything comes down to the heart, then what hope is there? Like Jeremiah says, the heart is without cure. What are we to do? Well, that's the second part of what Matthew is doing here, right? And we know the story. Uh, There's an arc to Matthew's story. He's still at the beginning. He's setting things up. But but we can kind of sort out where he's going because we know the rest of Scripture, right? At this point in Matthew, Jesus is fulfilling the role of Moses. But let me ask you a question. What is Moses doing at Mount Sinai? What is Moses doing there? Well, the Lord has drawn them to the mountain to construct a covenant with them. He's promised them a kingdom, a land where they could rest. And he said, when you come into the land, this is how you're to live. But he's done another thing too. He's promised his presence. And the law is about securing the land, but it's also about securing the presence of God. Follow my law and I will dwell with you. My spirit will be with you, right? And there's this this pattern, this relationship. The law is a safeguard, a condition for the presence of God. Fulfill the law, God promised, and my spirit will dwell with you. That's what's being given at Sinai. Here are the terms of our relationship. But of course, the people couldn't fulfill the condition. They couldn't maintain the law, and they couldn't keep hold of the presence of God. And so they lost it. They lost the presence. The covenant was broken. But then we come again to the side of a mountain, Fast forward however many thousand years, and here's Jesus. Watch what Christ says. He says, I have come to fulfill the law. What's Christ fulfilling? Well, if the terms of the law were follow the covenant so that you can draw near to the presence of God, we can see that Christ both fulfills the law and inverts it. He transforms it. Christ fulfills the law. He exemplifies this transformation of heart, right? He's the suffering servant from Isaiah. He gives his life not just for those who love him, but for those who are his enemies. But there's another thing here too. Christ is also the presence of God. And Christ, the presence of God, has drawn near to us so that we can fulfill the law. You see what's happening here? If before the pattern is fulfill the law and you can be near the presence of God, now Christ is rolling it the other way. The presence of God himself has come near to us to enable you to fulfill the law. He enables us by his spirit. As St. Paul says, he transfers us from the kingdom of death and darkness into the kingdom of life and light where we can live rightly. In this way, the law becomes not a condition that we must satisfy in order to have a relationship with God, but a consequence, an emanation from our relationship with God. God has done the thing that he promised to Isaiah. He said, no more will a man have to say to his brother, follow the Lord. I will take my law and I will write it into the very core of their being. I will write it upon their hearts. 
As St. Paul says, it's the Spirit of God working within you that enables you to will and to do the things of God. So Christ has come to enable us to fulfill the law. But listen, I, I want to con- conclude here. Because some of you are listening to this and you're thinking, I don't get it, right? I'm baptized. I come to church. I do all the things I'm supposed to do. And my life is a mess. And the presence of God feels a million miles away. You're talking about bearing fruit. I don't even feel God. I don't even know where Christ is. And I just feel like I'm drowning. If you're in that place, I want you to know a few things. The first thing I want you to know is that the gospel is for you. Christ is for you. And you might be thinking, but the gospel is for people that don't know Christ. I know Christ. I'm in the church. I'm trying to do that. No, no, no. The gospel is for you. Christ has drawn near to you. Lay hold of it. You weren't ever going to make it on your own right? And if you're asking that question, then really you're asking the most honest question in the room. How am I ever going to get there? But pay attention to what happens next. Pay attention to what happens here on the table. The message of the gospel is this, that while we were running away, while we were enemies of God, Christ drew near to us, that he came for you, not because of your worthiness, not because of your holiness, not because you were even trying to do the right thing, but because he loves you and he is faithful to make you his own. You know, as part of living our Christian life, there are things we do, right? And it may be, if you're finding your life is a mess, it may be that there are things that you need to examine, right? Maybe activities that you're involved with, relationships that you need some guidance through, Maybe you need to come alongside a mentor or an older sibling in the faith, right? And walk through those things. But whatever you do, whatever the activities you are that you find yourself in, don't get confused about the order. Don't fall back into that mechanism approach. Let your activity flow out of Christ's love for you. Whatever it is that Christ is calling you to do, remember that it begins here. It begins with the presence of God who has drawn near to you. Rest in that love. Draw near to that love. Receive it from Christ. And from that place, lean into the life that Christ has called you to live. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.